I'm sure we're all agreed that it's a, it's a crazy world outside. If we look um, outside, things are not really as we feel they should be, are they? I was making a note of a few things that I'd seen or heard in the news this week that made me think about the world not being as it should be. Assaults, shootings, stabbings, war. And then thinking about Genesis chapter 1 and, then, and the command that God gave to Adam and to Eve to care for the world. And this is a subject that's close to my heart in my, in my day job as well. We heard yesterday about negotiators from the United Nations, from the nations going into the United Nations, spending two weeks for the fifth time trying to agree on how they're going to look after the biodiversity of the oceans, and they can't agree. So even in the context of what God has commanded his people to do in Genesis chapter 1, care for his creation, we see governments not being able to agree on how that is going to happen. As we looked at Genesis chapter 1, we saw a perfect world made by one God. As we looked last week at Genesis chapter 2, we saw the generosity of that God, the good things that he gives, that perfect garden that we saw in the video for the people to live in. And then we saw that God gave the man and the woman each other to be intimate allies, to work together, to look after the world, to fulfill these commands that God had given, to care for the creation and to go forth and, and to populate it, to have children and to, to grow the number of humans around the world. God's people, in God's place, under God's rule, as intimate allies. But then next week, looking at Genesis chapter 4, we'll see a world which much more resembles the one out there today. A world of murder and pain and jealousy. So how do we get from here, Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, to here, today. And as we look at Genesis chapter 3, we'll see the Bible transitioning from that perfect world at the start of creation and framing what has happened to move us to today, to the world that we know and recognize outside. So let's just spend a moment in prayer again before we dive deeper into these verses. Father, we, we do thank you that we can meet together. We thank you that we can meet together and open up your word. And Lord, as we come to it, as we come to explore it and investigate it, Lord, I pray that you would speak first to me and give me the right words to say to help communicate these words. Help me to learn and help us all to learn. Give us things that we can find in these verses that affect how we live today and tomorrow and in the weeks and months and years ahead. Lord, I pray that as we, as we listen to you, as we hear from your, your word in the Bible, that we would draw closer to you. And I pray that we would all be changed by what we hear from you today. That we'd be drawing closer to you and following you more nearly. Amen. 
So in, in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 3, we're introduced to a new character in this story of creation, the serpent. And Genesis, the writer of Genesis, just drops this character, this serpent, in. Gives no explanation about where it's come from, apart from a couple of things. Note at the end of, verse, at the end of that first sentence in verse 1. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. What? That the Lord God had made. This is part of creation, this serpent. The writer isn't going to tell us anything about how this serpent became evil, how this serpent came to be deceptive. That word crafty that we see there, it doesn't actually carry the same connotations in the original as, what, as how we think about crafty or cunning. But as we look, we'll see that this serpent really was crafty and cunning as we understand it. But the writer isn't going to tell us anything about how, how that came to be. We can look back through our lens of the New Testament and we can see the devil at work here, but see that it is created. See that this serpent is created. And if it's being used by the devil, he is created too. Right at the beginning of Genesis 1, there was only God. And here, this evil that comes in is still part of creation. It's twisting creation. So, the serpent comes in. And then he says to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Look at what this serpent is doing. If you flick back with me to Genesis chapter 1, first of all, verse 31. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And as this serpent starts trying to deceive Eve, the order of creation is, being, is attempting to be reversed. This isn't good, is it? This isn't very good. This isn't perfect, what the snake is doing, the serpent is doing here. And God, in verse 28 of chapter 1, has said, God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over every living thing that moves on the earth. Again, this questioning, this deceitfulness, it's, it's attempting to take that order of creation and flip it on its head. The serpent trying to have dominion over Eve. And look carefully at what it says. You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Oh, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? But what did God say? In, back in, in Genesis chapter 2, where God gives this command, he doesn't say you can't eat from any tree. He just says don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and gives all the other trees which are good and pleasant to look at, to be good for food as well. Trying to make Eve doubt God's goodness. And last week we noticed that the name of God was brought in to the story as well, didn't we, of Genesis 2? The Lord God. But here the serpent won't even acknowledge God's name. 
He won't use that name, the Lord God. He just says, did God actually say? So he's trying to cast away Eve's understanding of God's goodness. But look at Eve's response and how inaccurate it is. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. She doesn't even name that one tree that she's not supposed to go to for food. And then what does she say? Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now she's misremembering God's words because of this temptation to, uh, to doubt God's goodness. She's adding to the command not to, t- not to touch it. God didn't bring that in in the command. And so it goes on. The serpent trying to cause Eve to doubt next God's judgment in verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. What a temptation that is, to be like God. But you will not surely die, says the serpent, causing Eve now to try and doubt God's judgment. We know, don't we, we, I'm sure we've all been to, to funerals. This isn't something we like talking about, God's judgment, is it? But I'm sure we've all been to funerals where there's been a kind of a woolly sermon, a, a, a poor sermon that doesn't, doesn't touch on the gospel. We've all heard those talks where somebody says, oh, isn't it such a shame about Auntie so-and-so? She was such a lovely person. I'm sure... Sure, now she's in a, in a better place, in a good place. And that pervasive thinking of doubting God's judgment, it just carries on, doesn't it? Yet, even in the darkness of the book of Ecclesiastes, where this person who wrote it has gone through all kinds of things, if you read in Ecclesiastes, he looked at everything, looked at everything, and then he says right at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, in, verse 12, in chapter 12, verse 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. After this person has investigated everything, tried everything for pleasure, he says, God's just going to judge every deed that we do but yet we doubt God's judgment. We try to set ourselves up in God's place. If you go to visit the House of Lords in London, then when you walk in through the tour, they take you in through the Queen's entrance, and hopefully you might be able to see the first thing that you come to as you go into the House of Lords is this most amazing throne that's decked out in kind of gold, and it's just, you know, it's really impressive. That throne belongs to one person, the Queen of England. She is the only person who can go and sit in that throne. She is the only person who can make pronouncements, proclaim laws, pass judgment from that throne. Thanks, Denise. 
as the serpent deceives Eve, he's pushing her to go and sit on God's throne, to try and elevate herself into that position, to sit on a throne that is not hers to take. In verse six, she sees that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to, to be desired, to make one wise, to pass the judgments that God passes on what is good and evil, to take on deciding what her own moral code is. Can you imagine getting on the motorway down towards Dublin? And if you've got a car that's good enough, you put your foot down and you go to 120, and you think, I'm not going quick enough here. You're to 140, 160, 180, 200. Brilliant, I'm flying along. And the guards stop you. I say, what were you doing driving at 200 kilometers an hour down this road? And you say to them, it's all right. I'm setting the rules here. I'm creating the moral code, the laws, the highway code. And the guards say, no. And your driving license is ripped away from you. That's what Eve is doing. Adam and Eve are doing as they bite into this fruit, trying to establish their own moral code and impose it. Trying to put themselves in the place of the eternal, universal rule maker, God. Before we look at God's response to what they do, I just want to briefly think about Eve's response here, how she responds to this temptation. And going back to how she misremembers God's word, how she misquotes it as she goes back to the snake. And we are all tempted, aren't we? We're in that, that eternal battle of good and evil that the video spoke about. And if you think back to how we were um, taught for, by Russell from Psalm 1 at the beginning of the sermon, at the beginning of the summer, Russell encouraged us to meditate on God's word. And in Psalm 1, we saw that if we rest on God's word, if we meditate on it, if we think about it, we're like being a rooted tree, rooted in the word, watering, watered, growing, and flourishing, a bit like Adam and Eve in chapter two of Genesis. So I want to pick up what Russell said and encourage you, take God's word, meditate on it, so that you don't misremember it misquote it as Eve did in times of evil. Just to encourage you further, in Ephesians chapter 6, where we read about the armor of God, putting on the armor of God, there is one piece of that armor that can be used to attack the enemy. And it is the sword of the spirit, the word of God. Now, sometimes we think of swords as, we've watched too many uh, swashbuckling films, haven't we? And we kind of think, you know, the sword that you can flick Will's cap off with from here without doing any harm to Will. That is not the kind of sword that the, that the armor of God is talking about. That picture of the armor of God is closer to the picture 
of an, a Roman soldier putting his armor on. They hadn't invented those swashbuckling swords to flick and to nick. Those swords were for doing damage to an enemy, for getting rid of an enemy. The sword of the spirit, the word of God, it's our powerful weapon for pushing back, for attacking the enemy in times of temptation. Now, we don't have time to really dive uh, deeply into, into all of these verses today. We could do two, three, four sermons on, on Genesis chapter three quite happily. So I will go quickly through what the immediate effects of, of this uh, succumbing to the temptation are. Immediately, we see that Adam and Eve, these intimate allies who have been created for each other, created for each other to um, fulfill God's commands and to follow God's commands, they immediately lose their openness with each other. At the end of Genesis 2, that was pictured as them being together in the garden, naked. And here we see them now, knowing their nakedness. Shame. They know guilt. They go to hide from God. And they go to hide because although the serpent has offered them this chance to be like God, all he's given them is slavery to sin and evil and death. And they lose their openness with God as well. And so they go to hide. But this is God who is so generous to them, who gave them the garden, who gave them each other, who gave them all those trees which were good for food. And yet they've gone to the one that they were not supposed to go to. And as they hide from God, why do they hide from God? Well, again, in Ecclesiastes, in chapter 3 and verse 11, we read that God has put eternity, set eternity on our hearts. They know they have wronged God. And so they go in their shame and in their guilt and in their nakedness to hide from God, knowing that they've wronged him. Yet what does God do? God goes looking for them. God goes looking for them. We see, we've sung of God's grace already this morning, and here it is. God still loves them, despite everything that they've done, despite their actions, God loves them. And he goes looking for them in the garden, calling to them, even after They've committed open rebellion against him, seeking them. In Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, we read that as Jesus was sent into the world by God, he came to seek those who were lost, me, you, who this, this cascade of sin affects today, affecting our relationship with God. But Jesus was sent into the world by God to seek us, to call to us, just as God walks through the garden, seeking and calling Adam and Eve. So there are these immediate effects, but there are also eternal consequences. You might know the band, uh, The Killers. You might know some of their songs, uh, Mr. Brightside, um, for reasons unknown or human, you, you might well have heard some of their songs. 
in one of their songs, Brandon Flowers, the lead singer, wrote these words or sang these words. This is the world that we live in. I can't take the blame for two. Yet here, in Genesis 3, in verse 14 onwards, we see nobody wants to take the blame even for one, for the actions that they have taken. And so we get this cascade of blame as God confronts Adam and Eve. What does, what does Adam say? God asks, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to? And in verse 12, Adam says, the woman, immediately blaming Eve. And then in the very next words, he goes, you gave me. It's her fault and it's your fault. And then Eve blames the serpent and the serpent, well, as the old joke goes, didn't have a leg to stand on. Nobody wants to take personal responsibility here. Adam will not take personal responsibility. He lays the blame on Eve and he lays the blame on God. And Eve lays the blame on the serpent. When I am tempted, when I sin, when I'm angry, when I gossip, when I do whatever it is to sin, how easy is it for me to say, well, I was having a bad day. I was under so much pressure. It was a toxic environment that was around me. Instead of taking the personal responsibility and saying, I failed, I failed you, God, and coming and asking for forgiveness. And so we see that God starts to undo the blessings of chapter 2 that he has given and starts to make the commands that he gave in chapter 1 really hard for Adam and Eve. The commands to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil came with a promise of physical death. And now we see God promising them and giving them spiritual death as well. There are consequences for every actor in this story. The serpent, we read, will be crushed. And as Jesus came into the world to seek those who were lost on the cross in his resurrection, we see evil, we see death defeated. We see that we have an opportunity to come back despite all of the things that God does here at the end of chapter three. Eve will find pain in childbirth. And instead of being an intimate ally with Adam, will vie for a position, vie to rule over him. And Adam will have pain in the physical work that God has commanded him to do, the caring for the, for the creation. And then how did, how did the snake understand, the serpent understand this command? You will not surely die, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so there is physical death. So as they are cast out from God's presence in Eden, as they pull back from God 
disobey God. And God sends them away and puts that cherub in place to protect Eden, to protect the tree of life. We could read this and get really depressed, couldn't we? We could go, this is awful. There's no strand of hope or anything good in what's happening here. But God has left strands of hope. Strands that we can pick up on and we can, we can find hope, we can find his grace in. As he loves them, despite of everything that he has done, despite, sorry, despite everything they have done, despite their actions, God loves them and he puts that love into action. What does he do for them? He clothes them. Instead of these fig leaves they've sewn together, God puts clothes on them. There is hope of life. Eve, the mother of all living, her name gives us hope. But even the fact that God says, well, childbirth's going to be difficult for you now, Eve. There is a hope of life. There are still going to be children. And there is a hope of rescue. There is a hope of that crusher of the serpent. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There is hope that the serpent will be crushed and destroyed. There is hope in the fact that God doesn't just immediately strike Adam and Eve down, that despite the fact he's casting them out, that there is spiritual death here for them. Their physical death is delayed. There is hope in the fact that they could be saved. He's driven them out. Only he, only God, can bring them back and rescue them. And in the New Testament, we see that rescue played out in Jesus coming into the world, in Jesus going to the cross and dying for us to take the price of our sin, our rebellion against God, and rising again in victory over sin, over death, over the devil. And so God carries on. God cares. God plans a rescue. And the tree of life that he is protecting in the center of Eden is revealed at the very end of the Bible to be standing in the new creation, in the new heaven and earth. And it stands alongside the river where the river flows out from the throne of God and Jesus to give us hope of our future. As God planned that rescue, there is a future where we will one day be able to go back into his presence in the way that Adam and Eve were in his presence before all this happened in Genesis 3 and they were cast out. So we need to continue ourselves as well. We need to be ready for the times that we will face temptation. We need to arm ourselves with the sword of the Spirit, with the Word of God. We need, if we haven't yet done, to listen to that seeking call in the same way as God went out into the garden seeking Adam and Eve. So he seeks us through Jesus and we need to listen out 
for that seeking call and respond to it. And we can have hope. We can look forward to the day that we get to see the tree of life and God sitting on his eternal throne and Jesus sitting next to him on his eternal throne in heaven. In a minute, we're going to sing thank you to Jesus. Jesus, thank you. Just thanking him, thanking God that there is this rescue plan, this glorious rescue. Despite everything that happened, despite the way it affects us through our lives now. But before we do that, let's just pray. Father, thank you that we could read these words this morning. Thank you that despite the fact that they, uh, despite the fact they feel like they should bring us to despair, there are so many ways in which we see your love, your grace at work. We thank you that despite their open rebellion against you, you went looking for Adam and Eve in the garden and called to them. We thank you that despite their rebellion against you, there's so much hope in how you dealt with them. We thank you that you gave them time. We thank you that you clothed them. We thank you that you promised, even in this darkest moment, you promised light and rescue and victory. And Father, we thank you so much that we can see that in Jesus. And Lord, although we have turned away from you, rebelled against you, that when the voice in our ear has deceived us and we've responded as Eve did, that you sent Jesus and that you call to us in Jesus. Lord, for those of us who've responded to Jesus' call, we thank you. And we pray that you would help us to meditate on your word, Lord, to remember it, to arm ourselves, to be armed with it by you, to be armed with it through the Holy Spirit. That we can remember your words in the times that we need to most. And we can use your word to strike back against the enemy. And so, Father God, we just thank you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the glorious rescue that you planned and have enacted. And we, Lord, we look forward to the day that we can meet with you in heaven and stand before your throne and the throne of Jesus and give you all the praise and glory that's due to your name, Lord. Amen.